Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week I'm speaking to Rachel Jolly, the editor of Index on Censorship. The Index is a quarterly magazine dedicated to promoting freedom of expression, and it's been published for more than 45 years with a genuinely global readership that it reaches in large part through its distribution via 9,000 universities around the world. Rachel has been editing the magazine for the last five years and she speaks about the changes she's made recruiting editors in key countries like Turkey, Argentina, Mexico and China. And she also speaks about the very specific challenges that she and her contributors face in publishing work that somebody somewhere wants to ban. It was really interesting meeting up with her and really inspiring to hear how she goes about her important work. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Rachel Jolly, editor of Index on Censorship. Hey Rachel, thank you very much for coming over to Somerset House. Great to be here. Most of the magazines that we have on the Stack Podcast are magazines that people have started themselves they might be like two issues three issues in that's not the case with index on censorship so maybe you could tell us a little bit about the magazine and what it does and where it came from so i think possibly index on censorship is one of the most interesting magazines in the world not to be you know over you would say over (laughs) pudding as it were but i mean i tell people this story and they're like wow i had no idea Um, And I think, in a way, I had no idea of the magnitude of it when I took on the editorship. I mean, I had some idea, obviously, otherwise perhaps I wouldn't have been interested, but it goes very deep. So Index on Censorship magazine was set up in 1972. Um, It was set up... um, in response to a letter that was sent to some people in London by um, writers in the what was the Soviet Union, and they were basically saying, we can't get our work published here, we're not allowed to publish our work, can you please help? We don't want a traditional campaigning organisation, um, we want somewhere where we can publish our work. So Index on Censorship was set up as a publisher, um, it's always had a bit of a campaigning side as well, so it's, it's two things. We, we call it a sort of hybrid publisher. Um, it's always been a magazine, and it's had some pretty amazing people write for it over the years. So it covers, it's always been global. It covers issues of freedom of expression very broadly. So it's not just about writers, it's not just about journalists. We also look at um, issues around democracy, um, around artists, around cartoonists, all sorts of issues around freedom of expression. Um, some of the great names we've had right for us over the years include uh, Philip Roth, Arthur Miller, Samuel Beckett, and Mark Chassin. All right, some, some fairly big names. And, and how long have you personally been involved with it? Um, I've been there nearly five years now. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it's been a, it's a pretty interesting roller coaster. Um, I have some great contributing editors around the world. So um, when I got there, we didn't have contributing editors. We just basically had people who wrote for the magazine on an ad hoc basis, so they knew people every time. So um, what I've done is I've, uh, I've got my, my contributing editors in key places around the world, so Turkey, Argentina, Mexico. I have a regular writer from China. Um, I had a contributing editor in, for, in South Africa, but now I'm looking for a new one because she's, uh, she's given up to do something else. And these guys pretty much write for every issue. So they contribute ideas and they contribute stories. 
Um, around them, we have some people that we use um, every now and again, really good writers in places like South Korea um, and, um, and other countries. And um, yeah, and we kind of put it together. Um, it's a quarterly. We come up with a theme. It's always a global theme. So it's something that touches people's lives all over the world um, because we have a really global audience, um, a global readership. Um, and we really are, like, we're read in every part of the world. So it has to be something that people can connect with. So, so give us an example then of one of these themes that you'll approach from a global perspective. So um, one of the quirkier ones, I suppose, is uh, we looked at freedom of expression around fashion, around what clothes you can wear. And I suppose in a way, when people often think about freedom of expression, they sort of think about freedom of speech. But obviously freedom of expression is much broader than that. Um, and uh, fashion was about looking at countries where um, there were restrictions on what you could wear and what the implications of that were, where there were also you know, societal pressures, so not necessarily legislation, but where people were frowned on for wearing particular types of clothing. Or, um, and then there were repercussions. And we had a brilliant story from um, an, our Nigerian writer, uh, Wana Udbang, who um, talk, who's quite rebellious in herself. And she <laughs> went to a Nigerian wedding. And there's a, an expectation that you wear a certain sort of outfit to a Nigerian wedding. And she didn't do that. And then she, she talked about how, you know, uh, she didn't get served at the wedding and people really, like, really came over to her and said, you know, what are you doing? How come you're wearing this? It's really disrespectful. Um, so from that sort of uh, societal pressure sort of angle to places like Saudi Arabia and Yemen where, um, you know, there are real restrictions and, and um, massive um, repercussions potentially for women, particularly wearing the wrong things. And so then that, I guess that's a good example of stretching people's idea of what freedom of expression can be. But then in the most recent issue, you've gone much straighter down the line with a piece on the decline of local journalism globally. That's right. So um, I think a lot of people or, or some people have thought about what are the implications if your local newspaper disappears, maybe in their own country um, I'm based in the UK, so I, you know, and I'm I'm a journalist, so I've thought about it, and also I used to work on a local paper, so something that um, really, uh, you know, it has a resonance with me. But what we did in this issue was um, we did a global perspective on the decline of local news or the pressures on local news around the world. So we had a piece from China about the local newspapers dying in China. And a lot of people have said to me, oh, I had no idea there were local newspapers in China. Um, or I just imagined there would be so many restrictions on what you could read in China, there just wouldn't be local newspapers. In fact, the local newspapers in China's, China have had a period where they've been quite strong. They've been doing um, reporting things, uh, you know, proper stories and, and getting across issues that um, people in the regions really wanted to talk about. But now there's a period of tightening up. The Chinese government is um, trying to control more about what's happening in the media. And then they've got the economic pressures that um, newspapers are um, seeing in different places in the world. So, you know, the rise of the internet, um, advertising from local newspapers going to other places. So the combination, though, is, is, is very powerful for China, where, you know, massive country, um, if you live in a small village somewhere and something terrifying or worrying is happening how do you do something about that and and that is that is the question I think for for lots of places is once local news reporting disappears 
what happens, what happens in terms of holding power to account. And I guess that's the real opportunity for someone like you with your network of journalists scattered around the globe that you get to take on a story like this which maybe people have thought of in local terms but then you can just say to these contributors what's going on near you what what does this look like in your part of the world that's right and i think uh, what we try and do in every issue is we try and connect the dots we can connect the countries um, and bring people sort of a network of what's going on and say, oh, you, you thought this might be um, a local issue to you, but look, that's also happening in Mexico, or that sort of tactic is uh, of, say, suppressing um, journalism, for instance, is also happening in Mexico, but it's also happening in Turkey. What are the connections? And also, we like to tell stories of where people have, say, overcome censorship by using a particular approach, because... Um, You know, we want to tell the positive and the negative stories. You say that at the beginning, uh, this all started with some Soviet writers who Mm -hmm. contacted people in London and said, look, we can't publish this. Can you publish for us? What's what's the the aim of the magazine now? Is is because I guess that now with the internet, it's so much easier to publish something. So the you know back in the seventies, you had to have a magazine to be able to publish something. Whereas now, virtually anyone can publish. So what 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 kind of role are you fulfilling? Sure. So I think you could you could put something up on your own blog, but would anyone see it or would anyone know it was that? Um, there, we're still struggling to get um, censored writing out of countries or sense of writing out of prisons where um, writers are um, being held. Um, so we recently published some poems from um, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, for instance. Um, we've got various, we've had various um, interviews with and, and pieces from Turkish authors who were imprisoned. Uh, we, we should say uh, Nazanin is um, a British national who is being held at the moment in Iran. Um, I guess it's a big story over here, but maybe not everyone yeah, around the world um, will know it. I, I think, in fact, I think she's a dual national. I think Sorry, she's Ir- Iranian-British. Um, her husband is British, and he's been campaigning to bring attention to the story. Um, she was um, arrested in Iran, spuriously arrested um, uh, for, and, and there's claims that she was spying. She's basically a mother who was visiting her parents with her small child, um, and um, wasn't allowed to leave Iran, and she's been in prison for some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, she, she's she been writing poetry. She managed to get some of the poetry out, both that she'd written and one of her fellow prisoners had written another writer, so we published some of those. Um, and it's, it is... Uh, the, the feedback that we get is it make it can make an amazing difference. Mm-hmm. You know, um, getting published in, in something prestigious, something international, can really bring attention to um, both people's writing and people's stories, what's happening to them right now. Um, You can imagine that um, in some countries, they would just rather that people didn't know what was going on outside. And, you know, you... It, they, the world should not be watching, I suppose, is what they're, they're thinking. And so um, there's, there's different things. For We're very focused on getting part of the magazine um, publishing censored writing, but also new pieces of writing that deals with issues around freedom of expression. So it's, there's a section, uh, the third section of the magazine is a fiction section. And uh, in that we publish, we tend to publish three to four pieces in that section in each issue. Um, and they are pieces that have not been published in English before, so they've either been published in another language and we've, we have them translated 
or they're new pieces of writing, completely new pieces of writing. And they're either by writers who've been censored or they're about the experience of you know, your freedom of expression mm-hmm. um, being restricted mm-hmm. in, some, in some way. You said earlier that you have uh, readers all around the world. So w- what do you know about these readers? Who are they? So where, where are they and, and who are they? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting readership, actually. Um, We're published by Sage, who is an international academic publisher. So through Sage, we we can be found in 9,000 universities around the world. So obviously through that, a lot of access from students, from academics, from researchers. Um, And you can find us in all the normal ways. You know, we're on Amazon. Um, The digital edition is on a a platform called Exact Editions. We're on iTunes. So, you know, the mixture of print and digital. So we have both, like almost everybody has these days. Um, But I must say the thing that really seems to make a difference to people is they just really like the print edition. Mm -hmm. Um, Print has, for me, I just see the impact of it. People just react so differently. They pick up the print edition. I've seen people smell it. It's really funny. And they're like, oh, look at this. Oh, oh, you know, turning the pages. Um, almost like, you know, it's just it, just a viscerally different reaction to a digital read. Um, so I'm very happy that we're available in both print and, and digital. Obviously, digital allows us to, re- to reach people who couldn't necessarily get hold of the print edition. Um, and most of the people who read the print edition are in um, the US and in the UK, um, but the digital edition is is available um, around the world. So yeah, it's kind of it is it's a really interesting mixed audience. And so for this this big mixed audience, do you find is there something that goes down particularly well with them? So you know, if if it were the New York Times, it would be Donald Trump. They know that they put him on the cover and they sell more copies. And I guess that well. Is it the case? Do you, do you see issue on issue? Do you sell some more uh, of one than another? Or, or do you tend to get that feedback another way? Um, partly, it's the headlines that attract, you know, as with any um, audience, you know, that's the thing that pulls people in. We notice that there's a great interest in both China and Mexico mm-hmm. as countries of interest. I think where I, I travel around the world and I find that people are just really want to know more about what's going on in China, obviously, in, incredibly influential country. Um, and a lot of people have no idea what's going on, for, what, what is life like in, mm. in China? Uh, what's it like to be gay in China? What's it like to be a journalist in China? Um, all those things. And so um, a lot of our China pieces are very, very popular. Um, we've had a long series of pieces from Mexico, and we've got some very good um, reporters in Mexico about the incredible pressures that journalists are under in Mexico. The, um, in fact, I just saw another report yesterday of yet another journalist who's just been killed, um, a local community radio um, journalist, and, and the report just came in. The numbers are frightening in Mexico, and that story, it's an ongoing story, um, quite rightly, um, gets a lot of attention from our readership. Okay, so you're dealing with a story like that where you have people literally being killed. I'm sure that not everything is extreme as that, but you, I mean, your your stock in trade is that you're dealing with pieces of work that somebody somewhere doesn't want to appear. Does that present you with particular legal challenges or just security challenges? Is there is this something that you need to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think, in fact, almost every journalist is dealing with these kind of issues today. 
but we have particular um, security issues and, and concerns, obviously, about specific countries. Um, there are some particularly difficult countries to report from, um, and in those cases, we may we, we tend to try and take um, reports from just outside the country. So, obviously, North Korea is one of those countries. You can't get a journalist in North Korea, but you can get um, people in exile in South Korea to write uh, about it, or South Koreans to interview North Koreans, or North people of um, North Korean heritage who've moved to another country. So. We try and cover North Korea that way. Uh, we have had some reports that, um, from people who've been in and out of North Korea, and obviously um, they have to do that um, very carefully. And um, but there are there are some incredible stories about getting information out of North Korea. There's um, there's a, there's a project that tries to sort of smuggle in information from the rest of the world in memory sticks, and then they float them across the river. Um, and they put them into tyres and they shove the tyres across the river, the tyres float across the river, um, and somehow, somewhere, people pick up the memory sticks and somehow the, the information starts circulating, which to me is like, how on earth does that work? But apparently it does. So we're, uh, we're a very long way from Pyongyang here, but so how about you in your office in Shoreditch? The, I mean, do, do you... Do you ever have uh, legal pressures from people saying you can't publish this? Um, I, t- I tend not to think of us as uh, here in Shoreditch because you know we have so many people around the world, so I tend to think of us as you know we're everywhere. Um, but sh- of course, there are countries where um, they would rather the story doesn't come out. We often have um, we will have conversations with journalists about their security. Um, we're working with some of our freelance journalists at the moment on, on giving them different types of training um, to help them with protect themselves and, and take um, reasonable measures. Um, we will have conversations with people about whether they uh, want to be named as the writer, for instance. Um, um, if they're using anonymous sources, we, we have a very... Um, we have a strong system about the use of anonymous sources um, and to check basically that the information is sound but obviously we're aware that that it may be necessary for security reasons so we have systems like that in place and yes libel for instance has historically been used as a way uh, libel actions or legal actions have been historically used as a way to shut journalists out or stop a story going out and we're really aware of that um, we work with some different lawyers, who, um, some of whom offer us pro bono support to um, give us feedback on stories and legal stories and so on, because obviously legal advice can be very, very expensive and we're a small organisation. But historically, Index has had that kind of support from um, barristers' chambers, um, solicitors who support what, what we're doing. So we're, you know, we're really thankful for that. Um, if there was a, one of our journalists was hit by um, a legal action, um, obviously they would come to us and you know and, uh, for something they'd published, and we would work with them and get them legal support and so on. Um, so we, if we're doing a particularly contentious story, you know, in the normal way, we would get it legaled, and we would um, we would talk to a specialist media lawyer about um, you know the, the various elements of it sure. before publishing. And, and I mean, quite aside from all of that stuff. Anyone who's making a magazine today is facing a set of challenges, whether it's about finding new readers or their distribution or what on the publishing side is the the biggest thing that you spend your time thinking about? 
Um, well, at the moment, thankfully, I have um, really good, strong financial support um, uh, from our publisher. So the, our publisher is also one of our funders. So um, I'm very lucky, or we're, Index is very lucky, that we don't have to spend a, um, enormous amounts of time thinking, um, how are we going to find every pound to bring out the magazine, which I think is one of the really big issues for any publisher, er, any magazine editor, is, you know, what is the funding model? And I go to lots of conferences about journalism, and we're all talking about, you know, what is the funding model of the future? And, um, and it's a difficult one. I don't think anyone's actually got the answer, but we're all trying out different things. For us, um, we, as I say, we're very lucky that um, our publisher um, supports us as a project and, so, um, and has done um, for, for many years. So that gives us a really sound financial basis where we have the confidence to be able to do things. That, and, and I have the time to be able to put the magazine together in a way that I wouldn't do if I was having to spend you know, 50% of my time looking for funding. Um, so, so that's great. And in terms of distribution, we're always looking at new distribution channels. You know, um, do we need to get into more bookshops and that sort of weighing up the costs of getting into getting a distributor versus you know independent bookshops and all that kind of things? We try and go to um, different festivals around the world and to raise the profile of the magazine. Quite often, we can then get the, the magazine on sale in the various kind of festival bookshops and things, and that that. Uh, reaches a different type of audience I think mm -hmm. so this year we're going to go to the we, well, we go to the Hay Festival quite a lot um, that's one sort of audience um, I go to the International Journalism Festival in Perugia in Italy quite a lot that's a different type of audience um, we're on iTunes that's a different type of audience again mm -hmm. so you know we, we do a lot of social media around the magazine as well so hopefully we're hitting different people in different ways and making them aware of what we're doing so you're five years into this role now. What are you looking to for the next five years? What can we expect to see next from Index and Censorship? You know, it's so difficult because um, there's so much happening in freedom of expression. It's, it's really hard to kind of think, what am I going to be doing in five years? Because right now I'm thinking, what can we do in three months? You know, what are the choices? Because this is happening over there. This is happening over there. How do we bring awareness to you know, the rising number of journalists in Europe, for instance, under threat. I mean, we, we've seen the last few years journalists being killed for their work in Europe. I mean, who would have thought that a few years ago? Who would have thought that we would be talking about um, Daphne Carinia Galizia being murdered in, in Malta? And when we, you know, from the outside, probably most people thought, oh, Malta, that's a nice place for a holiday. <laughs> it's probably pretty safe, you know. Who would have thought we'd be talking, sitting here talking about uh, journalists being killed in Slovakia. So, you know, I think there's so much on my plate right now. I haven't really given much thought to the future except for the fact that we, um, we will continue to need great writers, we will continue to need, uh, you know, great designer, um, and I'm hoping the ones that we've got will stick with us, and I'm always looking for new ones. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for coming over, uh, and good luck with that next five years. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for this week. I'd like to say thanks again to Rachel for coming over and speaking to me. If you'd like to see a copy of the Index for yourself, you can subscribe at indexoncensorship.org or, as she said, they have digital editions available via a variety of platforms uh, and you can also find those through the website.
I always say in this last bit that we'll be back with another episode next week and that is normally always true uh, but last week I had two interviews lined up with people who both had to cancel at short notice so we ended up skipping a week. The good news is that we're now back on track and we've got a couple of interviews done and ready to be edited on top of this one so thank you very much for listening to this episode and I can say with even more certainty than usual that we'll be back with another episode next week.